this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful on the table right back there. Uh, Go ahead and take that. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's our gift to you. You can have that. Um, And if you need a new copy of God's Word, those are available to you as well. We're in the book of Ruth. Uh, We've been here. This is, I think, our fifth week in this book. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 2 today. Uh, Not kind of in its entirety. We're going to read through the whole thing, but... um, but spend some specific time thinking about one thought that's fleshed out here in this, in this text. And that's, that's God's favor. That's where we're going to think about this morning is God's favor. One thing that I love about the corporate worship setting, and I think that I've come to love uh, over my time as a follower of Jesus, the 12 or 13 years that I've been a Christian, is that when we come into this space, uh, oftentimes this space, the, the way that we arrange ourselves lends itself to an understanding of, of performance. We have people up front here behind me who are regularly, when we're talking or when we're singing, these people are leading us up here, but then we have people out there, a lot more of you out there, and oftentimes it leads to this mindset for us of, of performance. But one thing that the corporate worship setting is designed to be, and this does not always accurately reflect because of the cultural import that we bring in from outside, is that when you walk through those doors and you gather around with the people of God, this is a completely different setting. This is a setting where you can't, where we're readily admitting that we cannot earn anything. We are readily admitting that we can't perform our way into something where we're readily admitting that it is only by the grace of God that we come together and that we can gather together. That it's only by the grace of God that we can engage one another in the love that God calls us to. It's only in a setting like this that we can look at one another and say to one another, brother or sister in Christ, I I love you with the love of Christ. And when we begin to think about that, when we begin to think about this space and how, how we begin to function, and we begin to process it like that, all of a sudden our world begins to be transformed away from, away from, I must earn something, or I must impress the people around me, or I must impress God somehow, to the mindset of, no, everything that I have has been given to me despite me. And that's largely what we're going to see this morning in our time together in God's Word, is this idea of God's complete favor granted to us outside of, despite us. So look at the look in your Bible with me. Uh, Ruth chapter 2. I'm just going to read the whole chapter this morning because I've got time to do it, so I'm going to do it. Ruth chapter 2, 23 verses. Let's read these together. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go glean in the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, 
Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and, f- and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, of the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some, of, pull out some from the bundles and, or for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of, of barley. And she took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also, brought out, uh, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So last week we keyed on a new character that's introduced to us in chapter 2. In, in chapter 2 we're introduced to this man named Boaz, who the, the Bible tells us is a, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. This is Na- Elimelech is Naomi's deceased husband. And so we see Boaz being introduced sort of in this second act. The first act we see Ruth and Orpah, who are the daughters-in-law of Naomi, and Naomi is in Moab because her husband has gone there because of the famine in Judah and Bethlehem, and, and so they uh, sojourn to Moab, and then they return back, and when, uh, when Naomi decides to return back to, Jeru- or to Bethlehem in Judah because the famine is over, Orpah and Ruth attempt to come after after Naomi. And Naomi tells them to count the cost of following her back. 
Orpah turns back when, there, when she finds that there are no guarantees. Uh, but Ruth accompanies her and takes her God. Naomi's God is her God. They get back to Bethlehem and quite a stir is made in the, in the area because of, of uh, this woman, Ruth, this Moabite who has come back and who has been converted and who has now become one of the people of God to sojourn as a foreigner in Israel. And so chapter 2, then we're introduced to Boaz, and the text tells us again that he's a worthy man. And the rest of the chapter that we read, the rest of the chapter 2, verses 2 through 23, tells us how he is a worthy man. And when we see this chapter, our minds should immediately think, he's, he's worthy of our recognition. As as a reader of this, he's worthy of our recognition. He deserves our recognition. Here's someone special, something different about this guy. He goes way out of his way for Ruth. And we made three statements about Boaz last week and how he points us to Jesus. These are the three statements. Just as Boaz promised Ruth that she would have all she needs if she stays in this field, so Jesus is the yes to the promise of all things. He is the ultimate display of God's generosity to us. And just as Boaz promised Ruth that she would be protected, so Jesus promises us unparalleled security in him. And just as Boaz promised Ruth that, he would be ref- or that she would be refreshed when she grew tired and thirsty, so Jesus promises us that he will refresh us when we grow weary and that we will be made new. So we see a connection here then. We see a connection. Last week we pointed to it. We saw where it was going. Boaz deserves our attention in the book of Ruth, and as he points to Jesus Christ, as we see each of these things played out in the life of Jesus in an amplified way, he points us to Jesus. So just as we see this connection that Boaz deserves our attention in the book of Ruth, Jesus deserves our attention in all of Scripture and on all of life. And the reason why is because Boaz's role is demonstrating God's favor to Ruth and God's favor is demonstrated to us in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And so, like I said, we're going to keep that in mind because that's going to be important. That's going to color all of the rest of what we talk about today. But there's one word here that was repeated three times in the first 13 verses that we want to look at. And that's the word favor. As we're reading this, it comes up, again, three times. We see, we see it first in verse 2, and then in verse 10, and then in verse 13. As we're reading chapter 2, in verse 2, we see that Naomi sa- or Ruth says to Naomi that she's going to find a field to glean. In order to do so, she will need to find favor from its owner. In order to do that, she has to find favor from the, the, the field's owner. And Ruth knew that she would have to be or find some type of approval. And it looked down to verse 7. She is persistent in gaining this approval. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves among the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, persistence except for a short, except for a short rest. So she's asking permission to glean in the field of Boaz. And the young man who is in charge of the reapers tells Boaz of her persistence. She continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest, he says. She's persistent. 
She desires to find favor, to find approval, to glean in this field. So Boaz, and as we see in the next few verses, does grant her this favor. And then in verse 10, she says to him, after he promises her all of these things, this protection and this security and this refreshment. In verse 10, a very important verse here, she says, or the, the author tells us, then she fell on her face, bowing down to the go- ground, and she said to him, why have, you found fa- why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a, since I am a foreigner? Boaz answers that he has heard of how she's cared for her mother-in-law and her returning with Naomi to Bethlehem. And then after his explanation in verse 13, Ruth receives this favor. She says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So what's this all about and why is this a big deal? Why is the repeated word favor so important here? Well, there's a couple of things that we need to consider. But you remember last week, if you were with us last week, we made one statement sort of towards the end of our time that we said we were going to key on a little bit, that we're going to talk about a little bit more. The statement that was made was, we are welcomed into God's family through God's favor displayed in a worthy man. We are welcomed into God's family through God's favor displayed in a worthy man. Boaz is a worthy man. It's stated and then shown to us. Verse 1 tells us, the rest of the chapter confirms it. And Ruth finds favor then in Boaz's eyes, which also indicates to us that she found favor in God's eyes. And verse 12 is where this hinges. Look at verse 12. The Lord repay you. This is Boaz speaking. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz showed Ruth favor because he saw God at work in her life. The way that she cared for her mother-in-law, counted the cost, followed her back to Bethlehem. The way that those things took place and transpired showed, demonstrated God's work happening in her life. He saw concern for Naomi. He saw humility coming to glean. He saw persistence in asking to glean. He saw response to his offer of protection, his offer of refreshment, his offer of provision. She doesn't say to him, now I'll be fine. Thanks for the offer, but I'm going to head over to another field and see what that can offer me. Then I'll make my final decision. And God was at work in Ruth, and these are the qualities of someone who God is shaping. And notice that Ruth's posture really cuts against the grain of our own culture, and her culture as well. Ruth's response really cuts against the grain of our own culture. Our culture, there's a word that we use, our culture frequently talks about entitlements. And we oftentimes feel entitled, actually a lot. We think that we can, or think we have the right to almost everything in our lives. But those who follow Jesus, the reality is that's simply not true. When we begin to see the luxuries of our life as something owned to, owed to us and not a, not a gift, again, Ruth's response here cuts against the grain, against this entitlement mentality. Our definition of rights extends 
far beyond anything that's promised to us. We think we're entitled to a new vehicle, but that's an overextension of our rights. We don't even have the right to a vehicle. We think that we're entitled to the approval of others, to their kindness. Then when someone steamrolls us at work in the middle of a crummy day, we're devastated. And every basic right relinquished is, is relinquished for the one who is following Jesus. We give it all up. And when that's our posture, we avoid entitlement. Entitlement, friends, if we boil down to its lowest common denominator, is, is pride. Entitlement is, is pride. It says, there is something inside me that makes me deserving of more than I'm truly owed. John Piper says it like this. He says, proud people don't feel amazed at being treated well. When we're treated well and we believe and we stand up and we think, yeah, you know what, I deserved that. That indicates that we are prideful. Ruth was amazed when she was treated well. God was working in her, and we see it in her humility. Again, her response in verse 10 shows us. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And when we think about this idea, there are a couple of clear implications here for us that we have to flesh out. The first, that... We should not presume upon grace. The first is that we should not, what do I mean by that? What do I mean we should not presume upon grace? When we're talking about favor, we are led to the idea of grace. You often hear the definition of grace as something like unmerited favor, right? Which is like maybe even more confusing than the word itself. But unmerited favor is the, 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 the definition we often get. Or favor that's just not earned or deserved. Grace is not in other words, grace is not based on a merit system. Grace is not based on a merit system. And now we see Boaz offer Ruth his favor, and it was not outside of some previous observation of God's work in her life. He saw that humility. He saw that persistence. But this is not her work again, but it's God's work in her. God was shaping Ruth, and it's seen by her humility and her endurance. But God's grace extended to us in Christ. And what we can see here is something even more dramatic. There is no perceivable good in us when God's grace comes to us. Romans 5.8, that's the only place that we have to go. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can also think about Ephesians 2. It tells us that our salvation is by grace through faith and it is Paul says it is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And I fear, I fear, friends, that many of us in this room are oftentimes presuming upon grace. We think that God's grace came to us because of something we did. Like deep down we think that. You may think, oh, I don't think that. But deep down, if you really explore the inner recesses of your heart, yeah, I... I, I deserve that. Friends, don't believe the lie that God helps those who help themselves. Uh, that's a problem. Rather, God helps those who can't help themselves and are shown and admit to their dramatic uh, inability to help themselves. Their dramatic inability to change their state of helplessness. <laughs> it, my, our oldest son, he will frequently ask me the question, 
is God strong enough to lift a car? Yeah, bud, he, he is. He's, strong. He's all powerful. It stands to reason that he could lift a car. And I'm not sure that that's all going through his, what's all going through his mind at that moment, or if he fully gets that idea. But Abel knows that his five-year-old body cannot lift a car. And he thinks to himself, man, if, if I needed to lift a car, where would I go? Where would I go to lift a car? Well, I know one, one person who can. It's God. Maybe that's what's happening in his mind. But in that, we're, like, we're thinking, right, that God helps those who help themselves. No, that's false. God helps those who can't help themselves and are shown and admit to their dramatic inability to change their state of helplessness. This is the grace of God. Thinking that God owes us something because we keep commands or because we aren't a jerk that often or because we work hard or because our kids turn out all right. Or be, well, that's all presuming upon grace. And, and I submit to you this morning, we do that far more often than we think. If we really ask the Holy Spirit to expose areas in our heart where we think that we deserve or are earning grace, we'll find more often than not that is the case for us. And if we really grapple with the idea that God is giving us something that we don't deserve and are not earning, friends, we will be humbled. We will approach our relationships with a level of humility that is dramatically unparalleled in our world. Earned grace is an oxymoron. It's like cruel kindness or confident insecurity. Those two things don't go together. You can't, you can't have them. Earned grace is not, is not a thing. Ruth receives favor from Boaz, right? And she falls on her face. She can't believe that she of all people, a Moabite, a foreigner, could could experience the favor of this man. This is a testament to her ability. Again, John Piper writes this, same thought. Humble people are made even more humble by being treated graciously. They are so amazed that grace came to them in their unworthiness that they feel even more lowly. But they receive the gift Joy increases, not self-importance. Grace is not intended to replace lowliness with pride. It's intended to replace sorrow with joy. So like Ruth then, like Ruth, we see the example here. We must not presume upon grace, thereby demonstrating humility. So the second, or the second implication, then the first implication, we should not presume upon grace. Second implication, and interconnected with that first one, we have to view ourselves as Ruth viewed herself. She was a foreigner, right? She says it. I am a foreigner and an alien. She, she, she looks upon herself and says, there is nothing in me societally that deserves this favor. And in that, I can't, I can't help but be reminded this text just rolls over my head. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, Paul writes to the church there. He says, and you 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, this is, this is grace. This is grace. Do people who are alienated and hostile in mind deserve reconciliation? Do people who are doing evil deeds deserve or earn grace? No. Now, when I read that, sometimes I brush over it, and sometimes I think to myself, well, actually, alienated and hostile in mind? Is that, is that me? D- doing evil deeds? I did, I'm not really doing anything, anything that bad. Unfortunately, that, that's, where, that's where we're wrong. That, that's where we're wrong. And I think that we've pinpointed, if we look at that and that doesn't like wreck us, that's where we're wrong. We've pinpointed the place where we're presuming upon grace. Anytime that you put anything in God's rightful place in your life, that is alienation, that is hostility in mind. Anytime you do something for your own benefit or to obtain some glory for yourself, that is an evil deed. That is the definition. This isn't just murdering someone. This is thinking a slanderous thought about another. It's like I understand more about that person and in whose image they're created. That person should live up to my standards. They should do the things that I think they should do. Again, we have to invite the Holy Spirit here to expose these areas of sin in our lives. I, I get it. It's a dangerous thing to do, friends. I promise you, as those who are in Christ, as those who are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, if you ask Him to expose these things into you, He will. He'll do it. It's one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. And man, there'll just be a, look at all of these areas in which I am placing God to the side while I put myself in the center. The immediate thing that came to my brain <laughs> is that as your, it was I. I led this morning by saying the corporate worship setting is a grace-filled setting, so I'm expecting some grace here. When When I... Did I just say that? When I, <laughs> when, when I think about the place where I struggle with this most, we talked about this in our community group this week, when I think about the place that I struggle with this the most, it's just wanting people to like me. It's just, just wanting to feel like you're here on a Sunday and like that there's some kind of like performance that I'm giving to you, that I'm just feeding you, and it's it's really and then you say, Man, he's so well read. He's such a he's such a kind guy. Oh, I really I really like him. And then you come back through the door the next week because you really like me. Friends, that is exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, well, that's pretty benign. It's not. It's an assault against God. 
The only reason you should be sitting here is because, because you desire to know God more. I could do some mental gymnastics in there and say, well, this is not really that bad. I could justify it. But friends, my soul is slowly rotting away while I make that justification. And some of you this morning are doing just that. You're justifying self-centered materialism. You're justifying cutting corners at work. You're justifying neglecting your marriage. And every time you do that, you act like a foreigner when God has called you family. And this is what Ruth sees in Boaz offer to her. She sees this favor. She is being treated like family when she's a foreigner. We who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God sent his son to die for us. You're treated like family despite being a foreigner. We demand our rights. We act pridefully. When we're people who stand up instead of fall on our face when receiving grace, we demand rights. We act pridefully. We believe that they are owed to us. And when we stand, when grace is offered to us, instead of falling on our face, we recognize or we say that we have not grasped the unmerited favor shown to us. So as we conclude this morning, I want, I want you to consider this this week. Consider if you've really been impacted by the grace of God and if it's, or, if it's, or if it's caused you to fall on your face like Ruth did when Boaz showed her favor. Have you really been impacted by grace and has it caused you to fall on your face like Ruth did when Boaz showed her favor? Are you... One of the easiest ways to ask this question or to determine this is, are you grateful for what you have? Are you grateful for what you have? Or do you demand more? Do you think more is your right? Immediately in our context, because this is where our brains go, our minds go to material and money, but think about your relationships. Do you demand more from people? While offering less, consider your work. Consider your health. Are these things your right? Do you believe them? Do they demand that they be in order and micromanaged by you? Or do you see them all on good days and in bad as things that God has freely given you and not things that you're entitled to? This is bold, I'm going to say it. I have the key to unlocking contentment with our money, material, relationships, work, health, etc. Most of the time when someone says that, I would say ignore it, but listen. The key to unlocking contentment with money, material, relationships, work, health, anything that we have here on earth is the truth of the gospel. We say this all the time, and sometimes it goes in one ear and out the other. Don't let that happen this morning. The, the gospel says, while well, you were still a sinner, while you were hating God and loving yourself and loving the world and loving everything that was opposed to God, God sent His Son Jesus to die. He sent Him to be a substitute for you. 
and to be a death-defeating recipient of resurrection. And he, if you repent and believe in him, will restore you into right relationship with God. And he has guaranteed you then an eternity spent with him. This is the key to unlocking contentment with our money, with our material, with our health, with our work. Is keeping that in our, in our mind and allowing that truth to transform us. Because if you believe that, and if that's shaping you, informing you, you you will not demand rights in any one of these areas. And when we do demand our rights, we say, God was indebted to me, and so he sent his son to die. If we fall on our face and say, who am I that I should receive any of this? Then you've believed that while you were still alienated and hostile in mind, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you and reconciled you to God. So pray this week. Pray that you would be overwhelmed by grace. That you would see what God brought you up out of. And that he would transform you more into the image of Jesus Christ. His favor did not come to you because of anything you did. Friends, I I can't say anything more offensive to you. I can't. This is the most offensive thing. We've been a little bit, uh, we've we've rounded off the edges of this a little bit. What, What I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is that you can't do anything. That, that only God can do this. And you have become the recipient of only something that God can do. Therefore, your response is to fall on your face. Nothing more offensive, but nothing more glorious. And when the Holy Spirit begins to work this out in our lives, one thing that I can say will happen is that we will be marked by risk-taking love. As a body, as Buffalo City Church, we will be marked by risk-taking love. When we take refuge like, like Ruth does in verse 12, when we take refuge under the wings of God and find that His grace is both unearned by us and totally maintained by Him, we will be much more free to love others. Our society is hyphen word. Our society is very obsessed with self-care. Self-care. We say, I can't take care of others until I take care of myself. That that statement is self-consumed, it's self-absorbed, and it's self-centered. And unbiblical. Your source of care cannot come from self. It can't. It comes from taking refuge under the wings of God. Okay, this does not mean that you don't steward your resources well or take care of your body. This does not mean that you don't sleep. Some people have gone to those extremes. That is not what I'm saying. Don't hear, pastor doesn't want me to care for myself. 
or care for my body. No, that's not what I'm saying. The idea of self-care conveniently gives us an excuse to take no risks in loving others. Because I say, I can't care for others until I care for myself. It conveniently gives us an excuse to take no risks in loving others. We say, I just need to take care of myself in this season. I'm no good to anyone right now. These are faithless, godless statements that stem from entitlement. It's It's God, not you, that cares for you. In your sickness, God cares for you. In your anxiety, God cares for you. In your depression, God cares for you. In your emptiness, God cares for you. In, the, in times of little, God cares for you. In times of plenty, God cares for you. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you. Surely he cares more for you than your most sincere attempt at self-care. Saying nice things about yourself or doing nice things for yourself cannot be better than what God has already in his grace said about you and done for you. That you are his adopted child, that you are a co-heir with Christ. Everything that Jesus Christ is given is given also to you. He loves you with an unfathomable love. You are joined with Christ. You have union with Christ. You are united with Christ. Can can you say something nicer about yourself than that? And all that, friends, came to you while you were God's enemy. These truths are God care. And should be recited over and over again. The reality is our lives change quickly. We are a people who do not share God's unchanging nature. The weather changes. My body responds poorly when the weather changes. Chemicals in our brain go different directions on different days. People cut me off in traffic. The care and comfort and refuge that God offers to you is rooted in himself and does not change. When you find care and comfort and refuge under the wings of God, you will take risks by loving other people. By following her back to Bethlehem, Ruth loved Naomi radically with risk-taking love, which is evidence of the grace she received and Boaz acknowledged. Radical risk-taking love is love that looks for no return on investment. Do Do you love others like that? No return on investment. Are you only spending time with people just like you? Are there people who you are pouring into that can't offer you anything in return in a worldly sense? We, we call that radical. We call that risk-taking. But in reality, the perspective of the world, love like this is simply Christian maturity. It's simply knowing God and understanding more of who He is and what He's done for us. It's, it's not a risk when nothing can be taken from you. We call it risk-taking from the, the, the mindset of the world. But in reality, friends, it's nothing. Nothing can be taken from us if we're in Christ. One of the New Testament visions of the church is that of, of great diversity. 
is a great diver, a group of misfits following a guy who got himself murdered. Jew and Gentile like race and class were secondary. Above, about the church, Paul writes in Colossians 3.11, he says, Here there is no Jew, Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And a diverse body of believers has had nothing in common but Christ. These people had nothing in common but Christ. Jew and Gentile, they, they, they may have been proximate to one another, but they, they didn't share anything culturally. A, device, a diverse body of believers who had nothing in common but Christ. Not just in the same room together once a week, but who were Galatians 6, 1 and 2-ing all over each other all, over, all the time. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Gently restoring one another when we're in sin. Those who are spiritual are those who are walking in the spirit. Go back to chapter 5, you can read it there. Or we could say that these are the ones who are mature in Christ, bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is love. It's love. And love is not convenience-based. Love is radical. It takes risks. It comes to the aids of brothers and sisters in homelessness and addiction and scrutiny. It comes to the aid of brothers and sisters in Christ in cancer diagnoses and in car crashes and in layoffs. Friends, would this be true of us? Those things are one once in a lifetime, maybe things that happen. Would we be so patient in our love with one another that we would step into a relationship with another person who can offer us nothing in worldly sense for the rest of our lives? We don't have to be drained by that. We are empowered by the Spirit of Christ to do exactly that. People looking beyond the external benefits, making themselves available to one another in risk-taking love. But friends, it won't happen. It will not happen if we do not fall on our face in awe of the grace that's been shown to us in Christ Jesus. Just one final thought. How do we do that? How do we fall on our face? Meditate on the gospel. That's all I've got for you. This is the baseline. The gospel is God's ultimate demonstration of grace. It's how we go from death to life. How we go from alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds to reconciled to God. So we must bathe ourselves in this truth and speak it to others. God's salvation for us achieved at the cross of Christ. We stand amazed because we've been welcomed in God's family through God's favor displayed to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.